The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, thanks for tuning in. This is The Glenn Show. I'm Glenn Lowry. The Glenn Show is sponsored by the Manhattan Institute for Policy Research in New York City, where I'm John Paulson, Senior Fellow. I'm also a professor at Brown University in the Economics Department and the Watson uh, Center for International Affairs. I'm with Jay Caspian Kang. Jay is a writer, a staff writer at The New Yorker, formerly staff writer at The New York Times uh, Magazine and uh, the opinion page at The New York Times. And um, what else should we say about you, Jay? What are you up to? Uh, I'm in Hawaii right now. For I've been here for about a month visiting my sister. So I, I don't know. I, maybe you could say that I'm extremely tan right now. <laughs> from sitting on the beach. But I saw of, a, a comment of yours on Twitter about you being maybe the darkest Asian on the planet or something like that. <laughs> yeah, you can't see it right now, but man, you know, um, I, I've spent a lot of time floating on a surfboard out in the reef here. Um, not necessarily well, you know, not anything that I would ever want videotaped or anything, but I have been sitting out there. And um, yeah, I don't really wear much sunscreen. So I've been, I've been trying to, you know, get about as dark as possible before I head back to the continental U.S. All right. So what are you working on? Um, well, I'm just here on vacation. But yeah, you know, still just writing a couple times a week for The New Yorker. Like, you know, when I get back, uh, I started that type of pace um, when I was doing a newsletter, much like, you know, John McWhorter, your uh very frequent like collaborator on all of this. Uh, you know, I I started working at that pace a while ago. I, I would say maybe two years ago, and I found that I liked it. And so um, before that, I had worked, written very long magazine pieces, and I just kind of like the being able to keep up with stuff a little bit better. So it's basically what I'm working on still. I don't know how you guys do it. Uh, my partner, John, whom I talk with here every other week, turns out a piece or more per week, 1,500 words or so at the New York Times. I don't, I don't know how you guys do it. <laughs> you kind of have to like schedule your day around it. You know, I, I, work, I wake up very early, I think is the key to it. So I wake up around 5, 5.30 every day. So uh, that's kind of how I get through it myself. All right. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is that I understand you've been covering the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard University and the University of North Carolina lawsuits for years. I mean, they, that suit was initiated when, 2014, 2015? Yeah. Uh, recently decided, uh, momentous decision coming down from the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice Roberts writing for the majority, Justice Thomas in concurrence, uh, 6-3 decision, Justice Sotomayor writing the uh, primary dissenting opinion, Justice Jackson concurring. Um, you've been writing about Asian American affairs as well. Uh, 
throughout your career, and that figured prominently in the lawsuit. I'm wondering what your what do you take away from uh, from the Supreme Court's decision and from the way in which various institutions have been reacting uh, to it? Yeah, I mean, I I started covering this, uh, I think, about 2017 or so, um, before they had the trial in Boston, which was uh, the sort of circuit, federal circuit court decision. And um, I think when I went in, I was, you know, just personally, at a personal level, if I thought about it, I was, you know, hoping that Harvard would win the case, right? You know, journalists are objective in the way they cover it, but obviously we're people, we have thoughts ourselves. And I was sort of had a very squishy liberal sense that affirmative action was a good program because it was reparative and it was helpful and that, you know, these institutions probably should be more diverse, right? But I think as I reported on it more and, you know, the, the case progressed and the trial went on and you got to see more and more of the evidence, you know, I think that it became a lot more difficult to actually co-sign the specific form in which racial preferences in the lead institutions, specifically like Harvard, were being practiced. And um, I don't know, as a writer, I guess, I found that tension where you're like, okay, everybody thinks this is one thing, right? Everyone sort of, if they're asked to describe affirmative action, would describe it as way in which they would say something like, hey, you know, there's a kid from Detroit or there's a kid from the south side of Chicago and um, they're descendants of slaves and that they have, their grandparents went through Jim Crow, their parents went through a great deal of discrimination. They themselves have gone through discrimination and we should give them a leg up, right? Like that's a version of affirmative action that I think many people in the United States on both sides of the political aisle would actually agree with. But you know, that's not how this was practiced. And I think, you know, you have pointed out on your podcast quite a bit. You and John have talked about it a bit, like a lot, I think, right? Like that's not what we're talking about here. And I think the more you start to realize just how much that isn't what we're talking about here, the more you start to question, or at least I did, right? I started to question like, all right, like, is this thing supportable anymore? Or is it so corrupt? And is it, so in the service of something that is not the thing that people think it is that like perhaps it's not even worth supporting altogether. So that, that was sort of the intellectual journey that I went through over whatever, six, seven years. But let me see if I understand you. You're saying when you come to recognize that the beneficiaries of affirmative action, although they may be black, black and Latino are not uh, necessarily uh, socially disadvantaged, that they are relatively more privileged African-Americans and not necessarily, uh, at least uh, at, in the elite, most elite colleges, the descendants of uh, people who had been enslaved, but maybe instead descendants of uh, African or Caribbean immigrants, that that kind of soured you on, on affirmative action toward which you had been favorably disposed? Well, it didn't sour me on, that specifically didn't sour me on affirmative action, but when paired with the very clear evidence at Harvard and, the, you know, that these universities are discriminating against Asian Americans, right? Um, then, like, that evidence, like, you know, I don't, I think you were convinced by it, right? I was certainly convinced by it, surprisingly, right? I went in thinking, well, I don't know, do they really do this? And then you read the evidence, you read some of the, I mean, I, you know, I think you wrote an amicus brief in the, at the beginning of this, right? Um, you read the evidence. I didn't write it. Or, but you signed I it. I signed right? on to right, it. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, you read the evidence 
that comes out about stuff like, you know, sparse country, for example, where they like hand out basically invitations to apply to Harvard or they start recruiting and how differently they treat Asian students, how they talk about them, right? You read about the personality scores and the way in which they talk about Asian students. And like this, by any measure, if this was any other group, this would be widely cast out as discriminatory. And so um, that's how I took it. I was like, this is clear discrimination. And so then when you have basically a system that discriminates against one group, right, and doesn't even accomplish really the stated goals in which the, its supporters think it does, then that's where you start to sour on it, right? Like, um, you know, like it seems to be have done in terms of a type of egalitarian vision that I think a lot of people want to have, it seems to have almost done more harm than good, right? I'm not talking about affirmative action in aggregate. I am just talking about the way in which it was practiced at Harvard and other elite schools. Um, and that's when I started to be like, well, you know, like, I don't know, you know, like maybe this thing, like maybe there's not that much to defend or maybe there's less to defend than I thought there was. You were not convinced that the benefits of diversity outweighed some of these uh, negative considerations? Well, I think that if they had talked about diversity in a way that I thought was concerned or like commendable, that I would have that I would have felt differently about it. You know, if they had talked about socioeconomic diversity, if they had talked about, you know, helping poor kids or to try and bring, to try and instill some sort of class mobility. Like there's, there's, you know, this is an anecdote and it happened in the courtroom, so I feel okay sharing it. But, you know, like I remember there's a aha moment for me where um, I was sitting in the courtroom and, you know, the, they were doing sort of uh, the, a lot of people are coming and giving statements. A lot of Harvard students who are in favor of diversity were giving statements to the court. And um, this woman got up, she was a student at Harvard and she was Latina. And she said, um, she told a story about how uh, she had come to her dorm and because of her last name, that people at the school or some of her classmates had sort of mistaken her for being her parents. They had assumed that her parents were housekeepers or something like that. Like this is the way that she expressed it. Yeah. And, um, you know, for me, I was like, well, yeah, that's not great. You know, like nobody wants to be miscast in that type of way. And maybe that's based on some stereotypes. But her sort of coup de grace for this story, the sort of final point of it was she was like, little did they know my parents are doctors. You know, and for me, and like I was like, oh, so like this is actually just about wealthy kids, right? Um, like, what was the problem? Like that you were offended that they thought you were poor? You know, like like what what is the source of offense here? Like, what is the sense of what is the problem here? Um, and then why is it the great triumphant which uh, return is just like actually I'm just like all of you. I'm just like a rich suburban person too, right? I, my identity just happens to be different, and the fact that this was given. As part of this sort of like I don't know like I guess uh, like a like a raft of, of of narratives that were supposed to tell us why diversity was great like I just found it extremely un- unconvincing right like um, and I think it actually reflects the way in which these schools think about diversity which is like let's try and get as many kids who went to oh I don't know like um, Deerfield Academy or or Exeter or Choate or you know, any of the big prep schools in New York City. Um, and let's just try and make, get that group as diverse as possible. And then we can just have a diverse group of rich kids. Like that, that's how this functioned for many, many years. That's how it is pursued, right? Like I, and um, for me, like it's not a particularly compelling vision of, of um, 
you know, as somebody who is far on the left, right? Like, it's just not compelling in any sort of way. Uh, and I've, I actually find the corruption of it to be, you know, almost unforgivable. Unforgivable. Well, <laughs> I've been saying for a long time, I tell this to my students every time I teach about affirmative action, I say this is about elitism. And it is ensuring that you have racial diversity amongst those who are elite, but it doesn't raise any question about the pre-existing structure of elite hierarchy in the first place. It takes it, takes it as given. So how progressive could it be? Right, right, right. If the idea is that a school in which, um, you know, with Harvard, there, I believe there are more students in the 0.1% than the bottom 20%, right? There are more students in... Of the income in, distribution. Of the yeah. income distribution, family income distribution. There are more students, many more students in the one top 1% than in the, I think, in the bottom 60%, right, at Harvard. Or maybe it's somewhat close. Um, like, And that a school that, you know, has been taught... Like, you had the Operation Varsity Blue scandal, right, where they're just sort of handing out <laughs> you know, like uh, to these like obscure sports that nobody plays except rich people. Uh, you have, you know, like I, I am not like that bent out of shape about legacy admissions, but it seems to be something that a lot of people are are mad about, right? You have all these sorts of forms of corruption to try and ensure that the student body is as wealthy and elite as possible. And the biggest way in which they do this is that they make themselves so exclusive that only the top, top students and the people who can afford to sort of become or can afford to pay their way in, get in, right? Like, how virtuous could that possibly be by adjusting the number of Black students or Latino students or Asian students by a small percentage, right? Like, there's there's so little, like, you're basically, it's not even like rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic or anything like that. It's like literally just like, I don't know, like changing part of a paint job in a car that's like heading towards a wall or something like that, right? Like it, it just doesn't make any difference to me. And so I agree with you about that. Like I just, I've never been able to see where the virtue is in this um, and the way that it's practiced. And I think that um, the fact that it's almost exclusively practiced at large, at these elite institutions, like a place like Texas A&M, for example, doesn't really have affirmative action, right? Um, because they don't need to. Uh, like, I, I don't know. I just found it to be such a peculiarly small and like almost uh, like an ornate thing at this point, right? And it, it, it becomes very difficult to, to defend at some level. I, I saw one of the lawyers who uh, led the legal team for the Students for Fair Admissions interview. I don't remember his name. Uh, but he had an argument and his argument was he, breaking it down to its basic elements. He says, they're basically, there are three kinds of students here that uh, Harvard is recruiting. There are the minority students on their affirmative action, the non-Asian minority students. There are the geniuses, the people with very high intellectual performance um, measured by test scores and so forth. And then there are the rich kids, the alumni, the legacies. Uh, yeah, so. He says, it's really all about the rich kids. Every, everything else is in the service of taking care of the rich kids. So you need the geniuses around so that the school can maintain its reputation as a place where geniuses produce amazing intellectual contribution. You need the minority kids because you have to be on the, social, the right side of history as far as social justice is concerned. But that's the tale. The dog is the rich kids. The, <laughs> the center of the enterprise is about cultivating this 
cadre of ultra elite wealthy families, loyalty to the institution, building the endowment and uh, taking care of your core constituency, he says, which for a place like Harvard are the wealthy families that uh, send their kids there. Yeah, I, I'm talking about diversity, right? Like, my question is always like, well, who are who is the beneficiary of the diversity, right? Um, and it you it is the rich kids, right? The way that they talk about it is very clear on this. They say, like, I, I remember that I was reading some brief, and it was about Harvard admissions officers talking about how they thought about diversity, and they're saying, well, it would be nice if like we imagined three kids sleeping in a dorm room together, right? that they had different experiences. And one of them could talk about their experiences being, for example, I don't know, let's say like for me, right? Like a Korean American immigrant who was not born here in the United States, right? Um, and one of them was like a student from Deerfield who grew up in Lexington, Massachusetts, right? And the other one was a black student from Idaho who had grown up on a farm or something like that. And it was like, the way that this happens is that my job is to like bring a bag of kimchi to the white, to the rich kid, you know, <laughs> to be like, hey, aren't we all great? That's why I'm here. Like, I'm here to like perform a, almost like a cultural theater, right? If you think about it in that sort of way, who is the person that doesn't have to perform the cultural theater in that sense, right? It's the rich kid, right? Like the rich kid is the standard there. And so, um, I don't know. I just find it weird to think that way, right? Like I would never try and like, I don't do that type of thing in my personal life. I, don't, I hope I don't do it in my professional life. But like this whole thing where the idea is that like everybody has to, is there to perform a diverse type of function so that the campus is uh, vibrant in this way. Like it, it really feels like if you take a step back that it is all sort of in the service of the rich kids, as you said. And um, the best evidence for that is that is exactly how the Harvard admissions officers talked about it, you know, over and over and over again, right? They would come up with these ludicrous scenarios that were all hypothetical about students sitting together or sleeping together or like sharing a room together or sitting in the library together. And the idea was always like, well, what if, you know, like the Latino person could bring some of their Latino flavor, you know, or the Asian person could talk about hard work. And it's just like, you know, like this is just baseline racist stuff. And it was done over and over and over again. And the reason why was because, you know, um, I think personally that there was a lot invested in sort of covering up how this system actually functioned, what it actually did, how it was discussed in these institutions, um, who were the beneficiaries of it. Um, I think that colleges were very reticent to release any type of information about any of this because I think they knew at some level that like people would be like, oh, actually, that's not what I thought it was at all, you know, and that they would lose support for it. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. Like this, I do find that to be like a conspiratorial thought. Do I find what to be a conspiratorial Like the thought? idea that the universities were invested in not telling people what they were actually doing in terms of diversity, like that they were like blocking any type of inquiry into like, for example, who were the beneficiaries of affirmative action. I mean, that they were doing that intentionally. Yeah, I, I think they were not being forthcoming about exactly what they were doing. And uh, the evidence for that, for me, is that we didn't know how large the uh, disparities were in likelihood of being admitted conditional on your academic qualification across the racial groups until the lawsuit forced Harvard to reveal the, the information. And when you saw it, as you pointed out, it was graphic. I, I can still remember my first time seeing this table in uh, Peter Arcidiacono's brief, 
where he stratifies the applicant pool by the quality of their academic uh, preparation. And then he looks at, you know, if you're in the fifth percent, uh, 50th percentile or the 70th or the 90th, what's your chance of getting admitted to Harvard if you're black, if you're Asian, if you're white, if you're Latino? And it was like, you know, order of magnitude difference. The Asian kid could be at the 80th percentile and have like a 6% chance of getting admitted compared to a 30 or 40% chance of getting admitted if a black kid with the same portfolio. So, yeah, uh, they weren't. They weren't exactly forthcoming. Conspiratorial? Well, you know, I, dishonest, you yeah. know, not not uh, straightforward for sure. But no, a lot of Asian uh, kids supported the university in its effort to uh, avoid the, uh, you know, repercussions of the of the student for fair admission loss lawsuit. How so? Um, well, I, you know, I think that there are people, and I think that they're well-intentioned, and I think and maybe they're right, right? That they feel that, um, even if they feel that a place like Harvard, I remember I spoke to a Harvard student when I started doing my reporting, and she said, um, it's very difficult to choose between, have to choose between Harvard, you know, the institution, and Ed Bloom, who is the, you know, the lawyer who, or not the lawyer, the legal activist who brought this lawsuit, right? And that um, she felt that uh, in aggregate that perhaps it would be better to have affirmative action, to not have this thing struck down. And I think in some ways, and although she didn't say this, I imagine she might feel this way, and some other students I spoke to did feel this way and did express it explicitly, which is that they worried that a sense of racial solidarity, the idea of like people of color, for example, right, would be disrupted by something like this, right? That Asians, I don't know, if you study any type of Asian American history, or at least the sort of academic discussions about Asian American history, you come across this idea of like Asian Americans being used as a wedge, right? Like to separate, to be placed in between black and white communities and or whatever, this idea of the model minority. And that they felt that this lawsuit, even if they did agree that Harvard was probably discriminating against them, that the destruction from being used in this type of way, right, to end affirmative action effectively at these schools, uh, that that was more harmful, you know. And I think if the, the the good faith and I think the generous interpretation of this would say that. And I do think that many people, most of the people who are opposed to us felt this way specifically. Um, and then I think some people, you know, just are kind of locked into whatever side they're on, right? And they wanted to be on the progressive side, right? But I think for a lot of people who gave it a lot of thought, I think it was that. It was this idea of like, can we actually disrupt the people of color coalition? Um, and dare we, you know, like that, it was, I think it was that type of thinking. Dare we less what? What, what are the alternative? What's the negative consequence of disrupting? Not uh, to be accepted as a member in good standing of the progressive pantheon of American society. Yeah, I'm guessing. yeah, I think I'm, so. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Um, I think it ultimately, I've written a lot about this. I think ultimately it ends up being somewhat of a class issue, right? Uh, I live in, for example, I was not born in the United States. I grew up in North Carolina, but I live now in Berkeley, California. Before that, I lived in Brooklyn, right? My Everyone that I worked at the New York Times and now I work at the New Yorker, 
the vast majority of the people that I interact with in any given day are progressive, wealthy, um, wealthy progressives, right? Very highly educated. That's true of most Asian people who go through elite schooling like I did. And I think that uh, basically it's your social position is at stake in some ways. If you come out and you're against some of these things, um, I think a lot of people who are in the academy are very invested in the idea of an identity politics that does group, you know, that does have a type of idea of people of color solidarity. I think for the academics, that is at risk if you come out against this. And I think that there is just a lot of fear that those types of ideas would be dismantled and broken down. And um, I don't know. I don't think that it was a crazy thought that those people felt that way, you know, but I just, you know, I don't know. I think it just required them to overlook the clear discrimination that was happening against their own people, um, which I just found to be like, like, I'm not beholden to any of those things. And so for me, the only thing is to just point out, hey, this is clear discrimination. Um, and the other stuff I don't really care about. Uh, I do care about like the idea of solidarity and whatever, but I'm much more cynical about the idea that like, you know, um, the academic people of color coalition actually matters to the vast majority of Americans, you know, including the people of those identities that they're trying to protect. Um, I think it's almost a separate thing, right? So, um, yeah, for me, it was just, you know, this is clear discrimination and, you know, that's weird. You described yourself as far left. Did I get that right? Yeah, well, you know, economically. Much like your, uh, yes, I'm, I, I voted for Bernie Sanders. <laughs> I don't know. What, maybe that's the best so, way to put so it. So then let me just, I just want to get your reaction as a man of the left to the culture argument. I can make a culture argument about what's wrong in inner city, low-income African-American communities with the violence and school failure and broken families and things like that. And I could make a culture argument in the spirit. I don't know if you know the book, um, The Asian-American Achievement Paradox by Jennifer Lee and Minjo. They interview Asian families in Southern California and they, they make, I don't know if they don't up to it, but I read the book and what I saw was a culture argument about families and values and norms and expectations and whatever. Is it okay? Is it kosher to make culture arguments uh, either with respect to those lagging behind or with those who are doing exceptionally well uh, on the left in your view? Um, Well, I think it depends on the cultural arguments you make, but I do agree with you that there are people who I think would be squeamish about the idea of making a cultural argument who are in fact making a cultural argument, right? So for example, there is a book put out recently about um, the suburbs and Asian achievement in the suburbs, right? And I think the specific suburb was like a suburb of Boston, um, Lexington, Massachusetts, right? Uh, Which is a very wealthy, educated suburb that has a large Asian population now. Um, I know it well. The argument was basically that was made, if you read it without knowing how to read it, I think you would just assume that this was a cultural argument and saying that the Asian families care more about things like Russian math, for example, and that the white families care about sports, right? Which is true, right? Like I think probably in that community that like the three hours that the, a lot of the white kids in those types of suburbs do playing soccer or whatever, the Asian kids are going to violin and math. And that's why by the time they reach high school, they have an advantage, right? Like for Lexington, there's not very many black or Latino students. And so, you know, like 
the idea was of the book, though, was that like this has created a type of resentment in white suburbs that have large Asian populations of the Asian achievement. But this is why the Asian Asian achievement exists, and this is why it's flourished. The argument made is basically a cultural one, you know. But um, I don't know if the author would own up to that, or the author would say it was a cultural argument. Um, so I think that that's just a long way of saying I think uh, we are that progressives tend to make more cultural arguments than they think, or will at least admit to, you know? Um, now, whether or not they'll tag them as that, I generally think that they wouldn't. But I do think that the majority, a lot of these arguments are essentially cultural arguments, right? Like, um, look at the way in which the California math curriculum, for example, is discussed, right? Like, um, and the introduction of algebra in middle school, um, the way in which like Joe Bowaler and the other uh, authors of that, of that report put it, it was a cultural argument, right? Like that was a cultural argument. They wouldn't say it was. They would say, or they would say it was a cultural argument in for good. But I don't know. That was a cultural argument. That Why was don't you explain to people who might not know exactly what was uh, recommended by the California? Oh yeah. Report. Well, it was um, to try and get rid of tracking and math in middle school, so that kids could all sort of learn math at the same pace. And that in the earlier versions of the draft, which you know caused great stir, and which has it has been edited, but it passed. Um, the idea was basically that you wouldn't teach algebra in middle school. You would start a type of, I don't know, almost comprehensive math. But what the casualty of this would be would be that like high school students would not be able to take calculus, right? And that the arguments that they made were essentially, I don't know, a sort of standard identity type of uh, equity arguments saying, um, well, Black and Latino students struggle in these environments that... Um, you know, because of whatever household things or whatever societal things, they think of, they at early ages, they start to not think of themselves as, quote, math people, right? And that white and Asian students don't have a problem thinking of themselves as, quote, math people because, like, you know, factors in the home or because they're encouraged in a different type of way. And that, uh, that the solution to this is to just basically keep everyone together until one can identify that they are a math person or not a math person, right? Which might be in the seventh grade. But if you start separating kids by ability as early as the first and second grade, then the kids who are in the lower half of the, of, uh, the distribution will never think of themselves as math students. And it's too, that's too early to, to do that. That's the whole argument, I think. That's also like, you know, in my mind, a cultural argument, right? Like that they're making. Has there been pushback specifically from, quote, the Asian community, close quote, in California uh, on this uh, development? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I think uh, the activation of the Asian community over the past 10 years is something I've been very interested in, politically speaking, right? Um, in New York City, you saw it around Stuyvesant, Bronx Science. Uh, um, in the Bay Area, you saw it around Lowell High School, which is the high school in San Francisco, which is similar to Stuyvesant. And then you saw it around uh, the school board, right? Um, school board recall. And then you saw it in the, you know, in a strange way in the, in the recall of Chase Bodine, the district attorney in San Francisco at the time. Um, but in the end, the activation does come down to times in which they feel like local or state governments are impinging upon, you know, what they see as like a meritocratic education system that they, you know, tend to do quite well in. 
And so, yeah, they've been very mad. You know, they've been pretty mad about the, the mad curriculum stuff. Yeah, for sure. So you think uh, the People of Color Coalition isn't uh, robust enough to accommodate Black, Latino, and Asian interests? Well, it depends where you, like, um, I don't, I... Common I was, enemy, common enemy, you know, the Trump... Yeah, I don't uh, think so. I, I don't think that that, I don't think that's rooted in reality, you know? Um, I think that that these, even within the Asian community, there's something I write about quite a bit, too, is, like, there's no real Asian America, you know? Like, what does it mean? Like, there's no Asian... I'm Korean, you know? I know I have some Chinese friends, right? We have pretty little in common in terms of the way that we were brought up, and, and, and we don't speak the same language, we don't eat the same foods, right? Like, we are friends in some ways because, you know, if somebody walks down the street and says, there's an Asian person, then, you know, we'd, we'd both be pulled, picked out, but we don't really... You know, like, there's not really a strong cultural bond there. And then to extend that out to the idea that, like, uh, well, all of us non-white people have our... It's not that theoretically there is not something shared there, right? Like, you could say, like, we share uh, resistance to white supremacy or something like that, right? Like, sounds okay. But I don't know. I, I know a lot of Asian people. You know, I know a lot of Latino people. I know a lot of Black people as well, you know? And uh, I just... Outside of like the academic circles, I don't see that type of expression ever. You know, I see it. I see groups of people who are culturally bound together for whatever reason, language, food, country of origin, what, and that uh, they tend to, you know, mostly not think of themselves outside of that group and not as in some huge coalition. Um, and so, yeah, I'm extremely skeptical about that type of idea uh, and the way in which like identity is leveraged uh, and created in different moments to try and give a type of political power to an idea that, you know, might not have the actual support that people say it does. You know, my son, Nehemiah, my, my youngest uh, of my five children is getting married in October uh, to a Chinese American woman uh, they met at Columbia, your alma mater, uh, and um, I'm looking forward to getting to know her family better. And you know, we're we're blurring the various identity lines here through intermarriage, which is a good thing, isn't it? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I somewhat agnostic on that, but um, yeah. I hey, I have a I have a question for you. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Um, you know, I'm, I've listened to your podcast quite a bit. And I remember years ago, maybe it's not years ago, but a while back, you, I remember, you, I don't remember who it was you were talking to, but it wasn't John, but you were talking about a moment in which uh, I think it was Norman Potteretz had asked you to write a cover story for Comment or whatever, right? Like about, and that it was going to be the magazine's big statement against affirmative action. And that um, you told him that you couldn't, right? Do you do you remember telling the story? <laughs> no. Oh, and that um, no. What what I remember was back in the '90s, as the California ballot proposition 209 was right. uh, coming to fruition, uh, and I was associated with something called the Center for New Black Leadership, which was a con conservative-leaning black think tank 
trying to promote social policy ideas that were center right uh, and was friendly with the relatively newly uh, confirmed Justice Clarence Thomas. He was a booster of the Center for New Black Leadership and had people like Ariana Huffington, uh, Shelby Steele, um, and and others of that ilk associated with it. And I was I was involved and I, I demurred about going out to California and campaigning openly for ballot proposition 209, saying that while I was not unsympathetic to Ward Connerly and company, the people who were trying to get affirmative action banned in California, I thought that if we wanted to cultivate good relations with people in the Black community more broadly, we shouldn't be leading with an anti-affirmative action crusade as our first, you know, step out of the box. And I, I got vociferously denounced for my equivocation, and I ended up resigning as chairman of that group because I was out of step with the sentiment of the board. And, you know, that was the beginning of my shifting to the left a little bit for my uh Black conservative, number one. See, I've been a conservative, then I was kind of a left center left guy. Now I'm a conservative again. So and I shifted uh, around in the mid-90s, late 90s from the conservative a little bit more to the left. But I'm back in place now. Well, do you, I, I guess the reason I asked is because I think um, what it, you were expressing and was that there is a, um, you know, that, that this is an issue that has such deep emotional uh, resonance and such that there's such an emotional attachment to this, to affirmative action generally, that it is difficult to criticize, right? Or it's difficult to even, you know, as you said, sort of if you want to convince people that like this is not the drum to beat, right? Um, do you think that's still true? Not as true, certainly not people broadly. If, if I spoke of blacks, I think, I don't know what the poll numbers are exactly, 70-30 or something like that, supporting affirmative action. Uh, it depends on what you mean and how you phrase the question, but support among blacks. But uh, outside of blacks, I don't think there's a majority support for affirmative action anywhere in the polling data. Again, it depends on how you ask the question. Were you surprised um, by like a lack of... Um... Like, I guess I I only think about it because I felt this way and I wanted to ask you this. It's just like, I was actually surprised by the lack of outrage um, at the decision uh, when it came down. I felt like there would be... Now, of course there was, right? Like, people wrote and people expressed it, but it was far more muted than I thought it would be. Um, and even in the week leading up to the de decision, I felt like it would be a constant flow of, of arguments, basically saying this is going to happen and this is why it's bad. And, you know, as somebody who's worked in the media a long time and pays attention to it, you know, I generally have a decent sense, I think, of like the volume of things and the appropriateness of it, right? Or, or whether it's really a priority for the people who are writing or the people who run, for example, like the New York Times um, or New Yorker or wherever, all these, these places that I've worked. Um, and I just felt like it was smaller than I thought it was going to be. I don't know. How did you feel about that? Yeah, I, I expected there to be some civil disturbance, actually. Right. I thought there might be people on, in the streets marching in protest uh, against the court. Um, I thought there could have been political mobilization of the sort that you saw after the Dobbs uh, decision on abortion, uh, in which uh, 
uh, people were making a big deal out of this is yet another move by a conservative court, delegitimizing the court. And you do hear some of that, but you don't hear nearly as much of it as, as you could be hearing. You don't hear anything close to what you heard after the abortion decision. So I, I, I think you have a point. And the question then becomes why? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what, I mean, I don't really have a theory on it. I don't know if you did. Like, because I, I, well, I guess, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say because the underlying predicate is very hard to defend. Right. As you outlined uh, at the beginning of this conversation about what Harvard was doing in the case at hand, but it, it's kind of hard to defend. It's not right at the core of anything. This is on the, on the surface of things, it seems to me. Most kids are going to colleges where affirmative action is not practiced at all because right. the colleges are admitting pretty much everybody who applies. Um, you know, Roberts, uh, I, I found Robert's opinion to be absolutely crystal clear. He says, you say this is for diversity and for creating a, a leadership uh, cadres that'll be more effective and, and more representative. But how would I ever actually measure that? How, how would I gauge whether or not you're achieving those objectives? It's very unclear how I can subject your claims of the uh, compelling uh, interests that are being advanced here to judicial review. He says, it's not supposed to be a negative. It's only supposed to be a positive, but it's a zero-sum situation where you admit some and you don't admit others. And it, clearly it is a negative for the Asians. So it's not consistent with the, the legal framework that we set out for these cases. He says, as we've said here, you're reducing kids to being representatives of these abstract categories as opposed to being individual persons, which is an essential stereotyping activity that's also inconsistent with the framework that we've set out here. And finally, he said, uh, uh, this is not something that we can be doing forever. Senator Day O'Connor, 25 years and all of that. Uh, and yet I see no end in sight for what you're doing. I, I, I see no even anticipation that there would be an end to what you're doing. So for all those reasons, uh, I found that to be pretty compelling. So maybe other people did as well. Uh, do you, I, have you, I mean, you've been in the academy for a while and it's, you know, obviously for a very long period of time, like, the one thing that has always, the part that concerns me the most is this idea in which people feel like they have to perform a type of uh, harm, right? And so for myself, for example, I think about it and I think, well, okay, I can sort of construct one, right? Like I can say, um, my parents were born in a war zone in Korea, right? This is true, right? Um, my family escaped from North Korea. That's true, right? Um, I have general generational trauma from uh, Japanese imperialism and from my parents being born in a war zone. I mean, it should be true, right? Uh, when I was a child, I lived in the, I don't know, I'm sure you're very familiar with Cambridge, but I lived in, uh, our family lived in the Alewife Towers. I know, I know the Ringe Towers. I read <laughs> right, this right, in right. your book. <laughs> right, right, I read right, about right. this. Yeah. I, I, no, wait a minute. My estranged wife, I was a married, coming to graduate school with two kids and we split up while in graduate school when I was at MIT. And they moved my wife and two kids to the Ranch Towers okay. that, that you talk about. So I know them very <laughs> so well. So you know, so you know them. Yeah. So I, I, my point is just I could come up with this whole like, yeah, uh, sort of history of oppression for myself, you know. And um, 
do I believe it? No. You know, like uh, by the time I was in middle school, my family was very middle class, right? And my parents were very educated. And so like, you know, like it's not like... Uh, and I guess I fear that what happens is that when students are incentivized to this degree to perform something like that, that they start to believe it, you know, like um, that, that they feel like the difference between going to Harvard and going to like, I don't know, uh, a perfectly fine, but not Harvard school is that they have to construct this type of identity around themselves. Um, and that if, you know, the way in which Harvard was doing it for a while was basically if you didn't write about it in your essay, it didn't count, right? Like it didn't count that you were this minority group unless you like told a sob story about it. I find that to be like totally indefensible. You know, actually, I find it to be like quite disgusting, right? Like, that this like elite institution is asking these kids to perform their trauma stories for them. Um, but, you know, as you've witnessed, you know, in the past 20, 30 years, however long that um, this type of story has been asked to be told. Have you, have you noticed that the students themselves have like, started to imbue it more? Do you think it has an effect on the way in which the students think about themselves? Or do you think it's just something that they do once and they just say, okay, it helped me get into Harvard and now I'm just going to stop? Yeah. I don't know. That's a question for a psychologist or somebody. I, I mean, <laughs> I, 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 I see the danger in what you say, and I have seen the performance that you make uh, reference to, how systematic the uh, embrace of this performative, uh, you know, internalization. Uh, I've been victimized. I am harmed. I am diminished. Uh, how widespread that is, I'd, I'd only be guessing uh, if, I, if I said anything. I, I do think it's debilitating uh, and uh, disempowering. Uh, and also, it's a lie. Right. I mean, it, it's untrue to the actual objective condition of the mostly solidly middle, upper middle class uh, black kids that I encounter at, here in my classes at Brown, um, they haven't exactly been beaten down by history, uh, notwithstanding the fact that they will be able to recount both in their own lives and in the lives of their, of their parents and grandparents uh, a wealth of stories about disadvantage and mistreatment. You know. But they're, they're very, very privileged kids, frankly. Yeah, I think for, you know, the Asian population, like maybe that was part of the angst that was going along or like for a lot of the parents of the kids who were applying to these schools, right? That um, they were told stuff like, don't tell the immigrant story because they don't, you know, like they don't care about that, you know? And it's like, I think that when you have, you know, like, like Robert said, like if there's a positive, there has to be a negative here that there was almost this, I think for a lot of the students and their parents that I spoke to, this belief that, hey man, like it's not great to be from, you know, like what happened, if you're if you're Vietnamese and you live in America, like you probably have some generational trauma like somewhere nearby, <laughs> you know? <laughs> right? Like if you, uh, if you are from Korea, same thing, right? Like there's like something that happened that was bad that if people who didn't know about it, saw photos of, they would be shocked. You know, like if you saw the poverty in Seoul when my parents were growing up, for example, you would be shocked. I was shocked when I first saw it, you know? And that um, yeah. there's this idea, that I think, that, and the thing that I think frustrated a lot of people, which is just like, look, nothing that happened to my family or me or whatever matters, you know? But then you have, like, for example, let's say, like, uh, you know, like a Chilean kid uh, coming who grew up extremely wealthy and you know like that matters more 
right? Like that he gets to check the Latino box. And so then like within that type of uh, atmosphere where those things are true and are happening, then how do you support it? You know, and I think that that was a sort of falling off point for a lot of these Asian families. And, you know, I don't know, I would just say personally for myself too, you know, where I was just like, it just doesn't make any sense, right? Like, you know, like the grandson of somebody who worked with Milton Friedman, you know, to, 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 to like, you know, deregulate the economy of that country and is a billionaire, you know, is so, like that identity <laughs> matters, right? But like this like poor Chinese kid who, you know, or like poor Vietnamese kid, poor Cambodian kid, like that doesn't matter. You know, like it doesn't matter what happened to this family. It doesn't matter all these different things. It, it actually just matters that this kid can check the Latino box and we can't. You know, like that's that's like not a good system, I think, for anyone but I think it's, you know, particularly on the left, because it almost makes a mockery of all the things that like we're supposed to care about, right? Like it, it makes a mockery um, of, of the egalitarian ideas that should be fueling a lot of, of these ideas. And I think that, you know, supporting it is, I don't know, I think it's silly. I was struck in uh, reviewing some of your essays in The Loneliest American by the concern that uh, you had of uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic of anti-Asian backlash. And I wanted to ask which would affect people who are not necessarily Chinese uh, since the, you know, a person might not be subtle enough in their perceptions to make the (laughs) distinctions. But but, uh, there's a lot of talk about China, about uh, the... uh, you know, confrontation or conflict or contestation between the U.S. and China and so forth. And I wondered, from your perspective, how how you perceive the bellicosity and, you know, ferocious character of some of the anti-Chinese rhetoric that we hear and uh, what you might think that means for the uh, political and uh, social situation of um, Asian Americans more broadly. Well, I, I don't think it'll be good for... You know, I don't think a sort of heightened Cold War would be good for Asian Americans generally, right? And I do think that that is one place where I would acknowledge that, like, some idea of Asian Americanness exists, right? Because, um, you know, like you said, if someone sees me and thinks that, uh, and is mad at a Chinese person, they're, you know, it's not like they're going to ask, right? <laughs> like, um, and so... But at the same time, I have started to believe, and I think that I'm correct about this. I'm curious about your opinion about it, which is that basically what we have is a cordon off anger, right? That the idea that the United States economy can decouple itself from China, I think is ludicrous at this point. I think a lot of people have started to understand that. And that whatever sort of political uh, rage that people want to direct and say, China this, China that, like, it's not going to get the sort of traction that I think people want it to. And I think that, in fact, it's been dying down quite a bit. Like, if you remember, like, and when Joe Biden was running in 2020, like, he had a couple ads that were, like, very explicitly anti-China, right? Like, none of that exists anymore. It's three years later. Like, we haven't heard him say a word about any of this stuff, right? Um, You had, like, Tim Ryan run against J.D. Vance, right? And a pretty, like, he was like, well, I'm the Democrat who says China's bad, right? It's like, he lost and nobody really cared about that issue. And I really think that basically what has happened is that like everyone has kind of looked around post-pandemic because at that point, I think because China was obviously in such disarray that they thought maybe we can decouple. 
And that like, you know, the people who make these decisions kind of were like, no, 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 we can't, you know? And so I imagine that a lot of this anti-China rhetoric is going to go down, you know? Um, because I think that the sort of business interests here in the United States have realized that like we can't actually have a bad relationship with China or else our economy will collapse. And I don't know. That generally is what matters, right? Like it's not like three politicians screaming all the time that matters or, or at least someone will pay them to like not say that stuff anymore, right? So I don't know. That that seems to be, at least that's my assessment of it. Yeah. Well, you're certainly right about the entailment about the extent to which the economies are so um, closely intertwined that, that severe disruption in trade uh, between the, the two countries would have catastrophic uh, effects downstream. I think that's I think that's clear. So you're in Hawaii, but you're just visiting. Yeah, yeah, I'm visiting my sister and my nephew for a month. Yeah. I'm going to ask a very ridiculously broad question, but do you discern um, noticeable differences in the character of race relations (laughs) (laughs) in the Hawaiian islands than one would see in the Bay Area, California or whatever? Yeah, yeah. I'll just tell a story about it. I mean, I I surf. And so um, the other my and obviously in Hawaii, everybody, like, I think this is, maybe people don't know this, but, you know, there's a, a strict localism around surf breaks, right? Like uh, there's a, each one, each surf break is kind of protected by a cadre of locals that go out and kind of are all friends. They all grew up together. Some of them have been surfing these breaks for like 40, 50 years. And the way that they keep sort of newcomers or tourists off it is that they act extremely hostile, right, <laughs> towards them. And so um, yesterday I was out at one near where we are right now. And I was there with my sister who... Uh, goes out to that break a lot and I think has been kind of embraced in some ways by the locals, you know? And But they didn't know that I was um, her brother and they were, you know, they were totally nice to me. All these people would, you know, if they were walking around San Francisco or something like that, would be classified as Asian, right? Um, and uh, and I asked my sister, I was like, well, it, it doesn't seem so bad here. You know, the locals, they all said hi to me and she was like, oh, it's because they think you're Hawaiian, you know, if you were white, they would have chased you off. You know? um, and so, yeah, in some ways, yes, it's very different. You know, like, it, I think it was one of the first times I think I've been like, uh, positively discriminated for, you know, even if it was a mistake, right. And so, uh, yeah, at least in the, you know, short time that I've been around here now, obviously, real power relations, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, like our different, you can criticize however you want, right? But I think on an interpersonal level, like, it's very strange for me to be here, right? It's uh, people, it's, it's it's almost like being in Asia, at least in Honolulu, right? Like, in some ways, it's almost like being in Asia, but everybody, you know, is, speaks English, use American currency, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know, I guess I just don't see many white people here, right? Um, I see a lot of, of, I'm in the city city of, you know, I think if you if I went down to Waikiki or something like that, it would be a little bit different. But um, mm. yeah, it's 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 very different. Right. And I actually don't understand it. Like, I don't understand the racial dynamics here, except in the way that I like experience in them. Like, I don't you know, I don't know that much about Hawaiian history. I don't understand why this is happening. But, um, you know, I think. Basically, because I kind of look Hawaiian that, you know, I've treated as such, which has been interesting. 
Well, okay. Got anything else on your mind? No, I was going to ask you, you know, like, uh, you know, like, what did you, I, I was, I, I've been curious. I wanted to know, um, specifically like, uh, what you think the schools or I guess the first question I was just like, do you think, like, do you think that there's going to be a discernible dip in the number of black and Latino students at these elite institutions following this decision? Like, do you think it's going to actually, do you think it'll be like California where, you know, at UCLA, at Cal, you had like an actual drop in black students or, or do you think it's basically just going to kind of stay the same? Uh, I think there's going to be an effort to keep it the same, but that's costly. and. Uh, Institutions will vary in the extent to which they're willing to pay that cost. So we're going to probably see at least a small downward tick pretty much everywhere uh, amongst the the uber elite campuses, but uh, maybe more some places than others. Um, I think, uh, you know, we've already seen uh, the movement to abandon the standardized test as a requirement for application. and. Um, that's part of what I mean by being costly, because of course you can avoid that information, but if you don't use that information, you, you select a different set of, uh, young people and you're doing that not only for the minority groups that you're trying to preserve, but you're doing that across the board and has implications for the, the character of the institution more broadly. So, um, I, there, there's the effort to rely on essays and the hardship Olympics that's invited of people to demonstrate their uh, character and, and fortitude by having overcome this or that racial impediment. Um, I expect we'll see some of that. Uh, what we won't see is the kind of thing that uh, you allude to in your uh, comment uh, in the New Yorker recently that I just was looking at of significantly expanded class sizes of uh, the abandonment of the recruiting channels from the, the elite prep schools where the, the Ivies would take a substantial portion of the class from those feeder schools, um, a expansion of the number of community college transfers that could be recruited into uh, elite campuses, and that would be more diverse uh, a uh, Roland Fryer, uh, I don't know if you saw it in the yeah, yeah. piece in the Times, uh, creating these, take some of the endowment money and create academies, uh, you know, right. scores of them across the country that could uh, identify and then cultivate youngsters early on from, you know, eighth, ninth, tenth grade so that they'd be ready to compete effectively uh, for admission to a place like Harvard. I doubt that we'll see that. I wish that we would. Uh, but your an my answer is, yeah, you're going to see a downward tick. If it's 15% at Harvard, I don't see how it can, 15% black at Harvard, I don't see how they could sustain that and also be consistent with what the court has required. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of the universities will use proxy systems, right? And I guess my question is, how quickly do those get sued, right? Like, And how quickly do those get subject to lawsuit? Um, and so if every proxy system then gets sued, like, I don't know if you saw, for example, at, at the university of, at Cal, right. Um, the law school, 
the dean of the law school just came out and basically said, yeah, you know, we look when hiring at race. We're not allowed to, but we just don't say anything, right? We don't, we don't say it out I loud. I didn't see that. Oh, yeah, yeah. He sort of gave away the game. Everyone knows- said out loud that we don't yeah, say yeah. this out loud. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We all, like, everyone knows that this is happening, right? Like, you know, that's why there was a frustrating conversation that was happening where people are saying, like, well, California doesn't even have affirmative action, so how could this Asian student be discriminated against, right? It, because, and I was like, they do, you know? Like, they just use proxies and they never say the words, right? Or else, but, like, obviously there's some um, diversity- uh, there's some sort of finger on the scale to achieve diversity they want. And the reason you know it is because there are people whose job it is to do this, right? And they, they, they're very proud of it. It's maybe they should, you know, as, as I think, like, arguably they should be, right? Like, I don't think it's good for a state university in California to have, like, 1% or 2% Black students, right? So, like, sure. you know, like, there are people there who are given that job to sort of do that, but none of them can talk about it. And so, yeah, you have this sort of, uh, the dean of the of, of the Cal Law School sort of saying, hey, um, we do this, but we don't say it. Like, I imagine they're going to get sued, right? Someone's going to sue them, right? Um, because of that. Uh, and the proxy is that it's going to, at the very least, it's going to be used as evidence um, in other lawsuits that say all these proxies are effectively doing the thing that um, that's illegal now. And so I think that the effectiveness, so, uh, the, yeah. The, yeah, go ahead. There's a statistical point, which is, you know, if you go to the proxy, uh, put more weight on uh, essays than less on test scores or use geographic designations and, you know, create uh, different uh, admissions policies based on farm or city or poor part of the city or whatever. There, you know, does it statistically have the effect of advancing the a proportion of the class that's black. So that's one question. And another question is, was that the intent? Did they do it in order to have that effect? Right. And you have to kind of discriminate between those two things. I mean, just because it had the effect of enhancing black presence in the class doesn't, on that alone, make it unconstitutional. But if it were to have had that effect as a matter of the design, as, as a workaround, an indirect way of doing racial discrimination, then I assume the court would look askance at that. But I'm, you know, I don't know. We're going to have more cases, that's for sure. And not just in higher education. Uh, I just saw a story today about state's attorneys general in uh, Republican states warning Fortune 100 companies that their personnel practices and their hiring programs where they announced publicly that they're going to make a special effort to enhance the racial diversity of their workforce could come under uh, scrutiny yeah. as well as a result of this. So we're, we're in a different world, it would appear. Yeah, I, I, it was hard for me to even, you know, not, as someone who's not trained legally to try and figure out how broad that decision was, you know, like the one that was written. I think there are some ways to interpret it as saying it was pretty narrow. Um, for example, right, like the sort of carve out for military <laughs> academies and stuff like that, right? Like it could be, right, it's pretty narrow, but I think it just depends on how they interpret it down the line in terms of this other stuff, right? And how um, broad it is. But I think it was still like, regardless of however you felt, a bit narrower than people were catastrophizing about, right? Or that they felt like could be possible. Um, Nobody even said, like, Grutter is overturned. It, it, uh, Roberts didn't. Um, Clarence Thomas did, right? Like, it wasn't, it wasn't like the sort of slam the door 
decision that I think people were that people interpreted the Dobbs decision to be, for example. Well, I thought on the military academy carve out that it was entirely consistent with the logic of Robert's opinion. Because what the military academies are saying is we have to keep good order and discipline in the ranks and we can't have a racial imbalance where the you know the officers are uh, mostly white guys and the enlisted people are disproportionately uh, black and brown. We have experience in the concrete history of the military in which this has been a problem and we we need to take steps in order to avert that problem. Then they describe the steps that they take. But that's doing exactly what Roberts said in the first part of his opinion that the practice at Harvard doesn't do, which is clearly, specifically, and measurably identifying what the benefits are from the diversification of the upper ranks by race, those benefits being the maintenance of order and discipline within the the organization overall. And that's not something that uh, a a big university can can lay claim to. That's how I read that. I read it, military is a special case because it's a well-contained system in which we can assess the uh, concrete benefits from the diversification that you guys are pursuing. Do you not see any of that in that, you know, in your classroom or, you know, in your job where do you feel like that if the diversity falls, for example, at Brown, that you'll be, that your, the quality of the education and also your experience as faculty will be harmed? If we went down to one or 2%, yeah. If we went from 15 or 13% to eight or 10%, not so much. But yeah, I, I I was just teaching a class at the University of Austin, uh, which is this new startup university, sure. free speech university that's trying to get going. I did a summer class. It was on race and inequality in America. There were 20 very able uh, students from all over the world who were in the class. Two of them were Black. The affirmative action case came down on the Thursday of the week that I was teaching, a Monday through Friday three hours a day marathon seminar. Mm-hmm. And the uh, one of the uh, African-American participants in this seminar said, imagine what this discussion would look like and feel like if we weren't here, referring to herself and her, her colleague who was also African-American. And, you know, I had to acknowledge and notwithstanding my misgivings about affirmative action and my general support for the Supreme Court's decision, she had a pretty good point. It would have been a completely different discussion of the case in the absence of uh, African-Americans. It would have been different even as the non-Black kids talked among themselves because the presence of the Black kids, in a way, conditioned and disciplined the conversation amongst the non-Black kids about it. They had, they had to know that the things that they were saying were being heard by people about whom they were talking. And right. that would affect the way they talked about them. This is not always good, but it's different. And different in a way that I, I think I wouldn't want to try to teach a class about race and racial inequality in the United States without some Black students in the room. That, that 
would not be an ideal arrangement. But so that would, you, there's like some threshold where you feel like some intervention is okay. Or is it really just that you feel like maybe without intervention, the, the numbers will be sufficient? So I could talk like an economist or I could talk like a lawyer. So the lawyer is going to say, what does the Constitution say and what does it prohibit? And, you know, never mind. The economist is going to say how much. It's going to say 2%, 3%, 5%, 7%. It wouldn't be a black and white. It would be a question of the relative merits of a little bit more, a little bit less. Uh, and at that, uh, in, in that register, in the register of a little bit more, a little bit less, I would say, yeah, zero affirmative action is not as good as a little bit of affirmative action. <laughs> But a little bit of affirmative action for uh, Clarence Thomas is like a little bit of pregnancy. It, it doesn't make any sense. You know, the law is the law. It prohibits racial discrimination. The Constitution is colorblind. That's the end of the discussion. Yeah, I guess, like, from my perspective, I, 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 I think that I agree with the, with the woman in your classroom, right? Which is that I do think that that type of conversation is very different and that there is an educational benefit for everybody involved, right? That it doesn't sort of become one group just sort of airing grievances. In this case, it's just white students saying, oh yeah, you know, like they get all the breaks and we don't, right? Like it's not an educational process, right? That's just people complaining. Um, but, you know, I, I just think that within the structure of elite institutions, it's almost impossible to create any type of... Uh, to create that type of conversation anyway, you know, because what you're dealing with is you're just dealing with, like we talked about at the beginning, it's just wealthy kids, right? Like, over, like that is the main identity of people who go to these institutions is that they're wealthy, right? Like that, that is, that's the most consistent identity um, of that's out there. And that, you know, for me, it's like the question of whether or not that type of education, there is educational benefit to that type of, within that type of context of having people who, you know, of different racial identities, I feel like it almost doesn't matter. I like it's almost academic, I guess. Um, now, if you could expand these institutions or even get rid of them and sort of reinvest in community colleges or whatever, I feel like then the diversity part is just sort of going to happen on itself, right? Like it does at large universities that take most of the applicants that, that apply. Um, like, I don't think that they have this problem where they would say, like, I don't think at Texas A&M, for example, if you taught a class, I, I'm only using it because it's like a very large university. If you taught a class about race, that you would almost never have a problem where you didn't have black students in that class, right? Like, you, like that would not be a problem. Um, and I guess I just, you know, hope that people will think more of those types of models um, in which you don't have to even entertain any of these questions, right? Um and I don't quite know why they're so or why that type of thinking is not more common amongst people on the left in America, right? Like, why do they accept the existence of the Ivy Leagues? Like, why do they ex accept the existence of Stanford um, when, like, right across the border in Canada, we have a country that doesn't really have those types of schools, right? They have big, big uh, public universities that are, you know, pegged to whatever province that you're from, and yeah. you know, like, like. Does it seem so foreign? Does it seem so outrageous that, that, that that's a system out there? And I, I, I guess I just never have understood why liberals and progressives don't, you know, make that type of argument. Why, why instead they feel like, you know, sort of juggling little bits of statistics at elite institutions is actually virtuous. 
Well, for the private institutions, they, they're private. I, I asked this question the last time I was talking about this with John McWhorter. I say Harvard has a $50 billion plus endowment. Whose money is that? Who does it belong to? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> I actually don't know. <laughs> yeah. Can you tell well, me? Like, yeah. This private nonprofit entity right. is this corporation that has been chartered and is, is, a, is a legal entity. Uh, controls those resources on behalf of the mission of the of the philanthropy. It's it's like you know a little small foundation. It's right. And uh, engaged in research, education, and cultural, you know, betterment. Uh, it, the trustees are responsible for managing it, uh, but it, it's it's a private philanthropy. Right. So. Right. They, they can make themselves a club for the rich if they want to. They, they, their endowment doesn't belong to um, the U.S. Uh, government to be parsed out this way or that. I mean, they might lose standing and their, their brand might be tarnished, but I don't see any legal constraint that, uh, that binds them to, uh, you know, to further the social objectives of this or that political faction within the society. Yeah, I agree with that. I I do think, you know, at some point Donald Trump started talking about taxing these endowments, right, higher than they are. And he kind of got some through, um, but at a very small scale. And I do wonder what it would look like with very steep endowment tax, right? <laughs> right? Um, if, if, uh, if, I don't know, somebody like, let's say, Elizabeth Warren started pushing for that, right? But I don't know. I think that part of the frustration of being on the progressive side of things is that you kind of know that Elizabeth Warren is never going to go after Harvard, you know? And that's why a lot of these things persist. You know, that's why these places have such cultural power, which is that, like, uh, progressive politician can talk about every bad in corporation in America that they think is bad, but when it comes to these places where elitism and exclusivity are fostered and where the next elite come from, right? They won't say a word because they went to those schools or they taught at those schools themselves, right? And, um, you know, I don't know. I think that that needs to change um, quite drastically. And, uh, but, you know, I'm not going to convince anyone. <laughs> you know, I can just say it, but nobody listens to me about this stuff. Well, I wouldn't say no one's listening. I'm listening. I'm sure I'm not alone. <laughs> And in any case, some tells me you're not going to stop saying it, whether I'm listening yeah, or no. not. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so listen, uh, Jay, thanks a lot for joining uh, the conversation here at the Glenn Show. I appreciate it. And, uh, you know, good luck to you in your future endeavors. Okay. Thank you. I'll talk to you at some point. All right. All right. Take care now.